0: Three boys were out on the playground one afternoon playing together, and as boys often do, they got into an argument about who had the better dad, and their argument centered around how much money their dad's made. One of the boys said, my dad scribbles a few words on a piece of paper, he calls it a poem, and they give him $100. Another boy said, well, my dad scribbles a few words on a piece of paper, uh, it, he calls it a song, and they give him 1000 $1,000. And the third boy said, well, I've got you beat. My dad scribbles a few words on a piece of paper, calls it a sermon, and it takes six or eight men to collect all the money. Now, I've told that story before. It was five years ago when I told that story, and I came across it again this week. And the first thing that stood out to me is the fact that that's a pre-COVID joke because we don't collect money anymore at least not using individuals going out in the congregation. We have boxes stationed outside, or you do it online, or you mail it in. That was the first thing that caught my attention. But I do tell that story for a reason, because as we approach this section of Acts, we come across a statement that appears here that I can't bypass without talking about giving. See, benevolent giving is a remarkable demonstration of faith. In fact, I would contend that financial generosity is a mark of true discipleship, and I would contend that because it was an emphasis of the first century church. So if you travel backwards in Acts, back to chapter 2, to verse 44 and 45, you read Luke's first description of the church. It follows that day of Pentecost when the the first converts were made. And here's what's said in Acts chapter 2, verse 44 and 45. All who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So when Luke had the opportunity to give us a brief glimpse into the life of the first century church, right after its founding... This is part of the description he gave. And now we arrive in Acts chapter 4. We arrive here in this scenario that is happening after uh, what could be called the church's first persecution. After Peter and John have healed the lame man and, and br- have brought in for interrogation in front of the Sanhedrin. We now have Luke give us our second little glimpse into the life of the church his second little description of what's happening and guess what not much has changed because as we just read a moment ago you can hear these words beginning in verse 32 I'm making sure no lights are falling from the sky just for the record because that has happened before Acts chapter 4 verse 32 now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Skip down to verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet, and was distributed to each he had need. It's almost an identical description of the church two chapters later. And, and here's the thing. We, we come to these descriptions and these passages des- depict the first century church as a people who gave their all by denouncing materialism and, ex- and adopting a communal lifestyle that shared their resources in order to ensure that no one among them went without. In other words, the first century church understood that generosity was their duty, and I think this attribute of the early church is so important that it warrants an entire sermon. Now, I'm sure some of you think that generosity is one of those subjects that we really don't need to talk about. It's not like our our weekly contribution is suffering, it's not like we haven't been orchestrating efforts this year to provide benevolent aid to our community through our backpack program and through our current ongoing uh, coat drive. All in all, we do a, a pretty good job at giving, at being generous, at being benevolent. But I choose to address subjects in the area of generosity, giving, and benevolence on a fairly frequent basis, because even though you might not struggle in this area in your own personal life, you never know when there is a rich young ruler in the audience who needs their heart to be softened. So, this morning we're going to talk about the act of generosity that is evidenced in the early church, and in so doing, it is my hope that we will not only come to appreciate the fact that the early church gave their all but we'll also consider whether or not we're giving all we can. And all I want to do this morning is call your attention to six things. This text, this section of Acts chapter 4 and chapter 5 tells us about generosity. The first thing I want you to notice is that generosity is a divine expectation. So we've looked at these two passages one description in Acts chapter 2, one description in Acts chapter 4. And in both cases, we have this beautiful depiction of generosity in the first century church. And the question that comes to my mind as I study these passages is what motivated the early church to be so generous? What what motivated them to be benevolent from the get-go? I think the answer to that question is simply jesus remember much if not most of that group that group of 120 individuals who were assembled in the upper room on the day that the church began much if not most of those individuals had followed jesus for quite some time before his death many of them including the apostles heard his teaching on financial matters. It would be hard to miss his financial teachings since Jesus talked more about wealth and possessions than any subject other than the kingdom of God. It's been calculated that one-sixth of all of Jesus' recorded statements and one-third of all his parables deal with issues related to money and stewardship. My point is that Jesus had a lot to say about giving, about benevolence, about generosity. And that group that began the church, that group that was gathered in the upper room, consisted of several individuals who heard those teachings firsthand. Think about that for a moment. A couple of Jesus' teachings on money really stand out when you start to examine the generosity of the first century church. First, there's Matthew chapter 5, verse 42. Where Jesus said, give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. A few verses later, when you get into Matthew chapter 6, you get to the second verse of that chapter, Jesus goes on to talk about the proper attitude to have when you give to the needy. In that context of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus presents an expectation that his people, that his followers, will be givers. And when he presented that that proper attitude of when you give to the needy, he used that phrase, when you give to the needy, That word, when, it implies that you're going to be generous. It creates an expectation that generosity will be a characteristic of his disciples. When you give to the needy, not if you give to the needy. There is expectation behind that phrase. I also reflect on Luke chapter 12, verse 33, where Jesus instructed his disciples to sell your possessions and give to the needy. As we've already noted, the church is described as a people who met the needs of the poor by selling their possessions and providing assistance to anyone found in need. And and this description shows that the church fulfilled Jesus' command regarding the selling of possessions for the benefit of the poor. that that very instruction he gave in Luke chapter 12 and verse 33. So when we consider the origins of the first century church's generosity, we discover that their financial gifts and their benevolent activity was their way of fulfilling the expectations of Jesus. They understood and were motivated by the fact that being generous was a divine command. That's the first thing I notice about generosity. The second thing I notice about generosity as I look at the first century church is that generosity demonstrates stewardship. There's an important description about the early church's attitude toward money that we must not ignore. When you look here in Acts chapter 4 and you look at verse 32, again it says, No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. The early Christians understood something about money that we often forget. They understood that our wealth, no matter how great or how small, and no matter what form it takes, our wealth is not really our wealth. When it comes to our assets, God is identified as the owner, and we are identified as his stewards, as his money managers, if you will. That means that our wealth is really His wealth. And as one preacher said, God wants His wealth circulated to us and through us so that others can experience His grace and His faithfulness like we have. But there's a problem. And the problem is that sometimes we become bottlenecks in God's flow of blessings. Think about that rich fool in Luke chapter 12. He was so blessed by God that he couldn't fit all of his harvest in his barns. In the face of such blessings, he didn't think, I have so much that I can't even begin to use it all, so I'm going to give some of it to others. Instead, he thought, I just need to build bigger barns so I can hold all of it in. And as a result, he became a bottleneck to the flow of God's blessings. It's interesting because when you read Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21, when you read this parable of the rich rich fool, the text doesn't condemn him for tax evasion. The text doesn't condemn him for money laundering. The text doesn't condemn him for insider trading. The text doesn't condemn him for price gouging or anything like that. The text doesn't condemn him for any unethical financial practice. The text simply indicates that he was a bottleneck to God's blessings. He could have been a source of God's blessing in the life of others, but he chose to hoard instead of to give. And think about that rich man in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. The rich man and Lazarus, the beggar, Both died. And while Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom, the rich man went to torment. Why? The text doesn't condemn the rich man for defrauding Lazarus. The text doesn't condemn the rich man for abusing Lazarus. The text doesn't condemn the rich man for stealing from Lazarus. The text simply infers that the rich man ignored Lazarus. It says that Lazarus sat at the rich man's gate, desiring to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. That implies that the rich man never fulfilled the needs and desires of Lazarus, despite his capability to do so. And so this parable implies that the rich man was a bottleneck to God's blessings that prevented Lazarus from benefiting from those blessings. And here's my point, the Bible doesn't condemn people for having money. The Bible condemns people for having a greedy heart that refuses to give up their money. I mean, Paul gives instructions to the rich in 1 Timothy chapter 6. In verse 18 he says, he instructs those who have lots of money, they're to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. We have to remember that one day we have an account to God for how we used his money. And if we want to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, rather than you wicked and lazy servant, then we need to develop a steward mentality. And the first century church understood this. They recognized that what they possessed was not their own. They recognized that they were stewards Of what God had given them and that's a reason they were so very generous. So generosity demonstrates stewardship. And the third thing I want you to know about generosity is that it provides encouragement. Now we typically don't view our giving as a source of encouragement for others and I think it's because we view giving as a very private activity and rightfully so. Because Jesus did say in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 3 to not let our left hand know what our right hand is doing when it comes to giving. There is an element in which is supposed to be private. However, you may have noticed here in Acts chapter 4, if you kept reading after the scripture reading today to finish out the chapter. In Acts chapter 4 verse 36 and 37, Next goes on to talk about a guy named Joseph who sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Luke doesn't treat this as a private act. He intentionally records it for future generations to read. But why? Now, we tend not to remember this particular Joseph for his surname, but we do remember his nickname, which was Barnabas. The name Barnabas actually means son of encouragement. That is a very specific nickname. Obviously, he received this nickname because he possessed the uncanny ability to encourage others. And in this instance, where we're first introduced as an encourager, it's centered around his giving. I believe Luke sees Barnabas' benevolent activity here as a source of encouragement because it shows that there are members of the body of Christ with the gift of generosity that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12 and verse 8. And I believe Luke sees Barnabas' benevolent activity as a source of encouragement here because it challenges other Christians to follow in his footsteps. we need to understand that our generosity has an encouragement factor to it. Not a showmanship factor, but an encouragement factor to it. That doesn't mean you need to go around letting everybody know how much and how often you give, how how frequently you are generous. All that information doesn't need to be exposed in any way or form. Just need to know that when you are generous it has the ability to build other people up. Think about the Apostle Paul. He references this fact as he writes to the church in Corinth. in Second Corinthians chapter eight. He actually talks about the church in Philippi, as he writes to the church in Corinth. He wanted to inspire other churches to be generous. And so he's held up the most generous church he knew as an example. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1-5, through 5, this is what Paul wrote. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of, of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, and this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and by the will of God to us. The point is that the church in Philippi, that Paul is writing about, had a great reputation as a giving congregation. And because of that, Paul knew that they could be a source of encouragement to other congregations. So as he writes to Corinth to encourage them to give, he says, let me tell you about this congregation over here. They were undergoing extreme affliction, but they gave because they gave themselves to God first. And he holds them up as an example. He holds them up as a source of encouragement to other congregations. See, our giving can encourage. Our giving can uplift. Our giving can be a source of mutual upbuilding. Generosity has that capability. And as we talk about Generosity in these terms, we need, we need to recognize something else about it. That generosity from you may look very different than generosity from me. Because generosity varies, much like the seasons vary. You may have noticed that the form of generosity mentioned here in Acts chapter 4, verse 34 and 35 involves some members of the church selling their property, whether it be lands or houses. And they gave those proceeds to the apostles to be distributed to others as any had need. And while this was the practice of some in the early church, it was not the practice of all. Later, we can go to Acts chapter 12. And in verses 12 and 13, we'll read about a Christian named Mary who has a house in which the church assembled to pray for Peter when he was in prison. Here we are. Eight chapters after this description of Christians selling their lands and houses, and we come across a Christian who still has a house. And here's what's interesting to me about Mary in particular. Mary is identified as the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. That's a direct quote from Acts chapter 12 and verse 12. Mary is the mother of someone we know in Scripture as John Mark. And John Mark will later be identified in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 10 as the cousin of Barnabas. Yes, that guy we just talked about a moment ago. So while Barnabas sold property and gave the proceeds to the church, it appears that his aunt had a house that she did not sell. And she is not criticized for this. And so the conclusion we can draw is that there, that there was no set standard, no set rule for how much you had to give and how much you were allowed to retain for yourself. That's why in a moment when Ananias enters the story in Acts chapter 5, and he lies about how much money he sold some land for, Peter tells him in verse 4, While that land remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Peter's point is that it was up to Ananias' discretion how much, if any, of those proceeds he should give. And that is consistent with what Paul said about giving back over in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. In verse 11 and 12, Paul gives encouragement to the church in Corinth to complete their special collection. And he indicated that one's giving should be according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. And the point is that God is not expecting us to give above our means, but he does expect our generosity to be according to our means. In other words, generosity is an expectation of God. But he's not defining what generosity looks like for every single person, the overarching theme of giving in Scripture is to do it, but to do it voluntarily, purposefully, and cheerfully. That's a summation of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 7. He said, each one of you, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And our cheerful, deliberate, voluntary generosity is going to vary based on our situation in life. And that's okay. The main thing you need to understand is that God expects you to be generous because he's been generous to you. God has poured out his blessings in your life and so he expects for you to extend blessings into the lives of others. That's the chief objective of Scripture when it comes to the subject of being generous. I also want you to notice in the passage today, as we look at Acts chapter 4 and some of Acts chapter 5, that generosity and celebrity are incompatible. Now, that doesn't mean that a celebrity can't give. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that if your giving is to build up your own reputation, then something's not right. See, shortly after the Acts 4 description of the first century church's generosity, we encounter an example of someone who had the wrong attitude about money. It's in Acts chapter 5, verses 1-11 through 11, that we read about Ananias and Sapphira. I hope to expound on their story a bit more next week, but let me give you the gist of it right now. Ananias wanted to be recognized for his generosity, so he conspired with his wife to pretend like he was giving the entire proceed of a land sale to the church. When in all actuality, he was selling the land for more than he was giving. In other words, he wanted to receive the same celebrated recognition that Barnabas received in Acts chapter 4, verse 36 and 37. And Barnabas received that recognition because he gave all the proceeds of his land sale to the church. But Ananias wanted that same level of recognition while also pocketing some of the money for himself. The problem with this plan is not that Ananias wanted to keep some of the proceeds. Peter clarified that in Acts chapter 5 and verse 4 as we noted a moment ago. The problem with this plan was that Ananias tried to pretend like he was making a big benevolent gesture for the purpose of being recognized by men. Ananias wanted the very thing that Jesus told his disciples to renounce. Go back to Matthew chapter 6. Look at verses 2, 3, and 4 of that passage in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The point is that we should never make giving about us. Jesus indicated that our benevolent activity is supposed to be done in secret because we're not supposed to be doing it for the recognition. Everything we do, including our acts of generosity, is supposed to result in God's glorification, not our own. And that's why generosity and celebrity are incompatible. Ananias found this out the hard way, as his pursuit of recognition cost him and his wife their lives. So we need not be generous for the attention We need only be generous because it's our response to the love that God has shown towards us. And one final thought on generosity as we get ready to wrap this up. Generosity is attractive to lost people. If you go back to that description of the church in Acts chapter 2, in verse 45, we're told that the believers were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Acts chapter 2 seems to imply that the distribution of those assets benefited both those in the church and outside the church. And what's so very fascinating is that if you read the full text of that early church description in Acts 2, you'll come to verse 47, where we learn that the church had favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Certainly, generosity was not the only contributing factor to the growth of the church. But it definitely was a factor that brought about the appreciation, the favor of non-believers. Because if you continue journeying through the book of Acts, you'll come to chapter 6 where the apostles selected seven men to oversee the distribution of food to widows. And we're told in verse 7 of Acts chapter 6 that the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. I find it so very fascinating that as generosity and benevolence continued to grow within the church, so did the church. And that shouldn't be surprising to us. Because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In other words, Jesus said that the visibility of your good deeds will cause others to seek God. And think about Jesus' own ministry Crowds flocked to him because of his generosity. Think about his feeding of the 5,000. They wanted to make him king after the fact. Our generosity has the capacity to affect the lives of those who don't believe in God. And it has the capacity to do that in a way that maybe nothing else will. We need to understand the attractiveness of generosity. We need to understand the effect it can have on other people. Not because of its numbers, and not because it's always financial in nature. But because it shows the love of God to a world that often doesn't see it. A sermon like this is very specific. A sermon on giving, on benevolence, on generosity, it's it's a very niche subject in the life of disciples. This is one of those subjects that ultimately you may not be struggling with this. Giving may not be the hard thing in your life. You may be a very generous individual. But not everyone is. There are still people who struggle with greed. There are still people who struggle with hoarding. There are still people who struggle with a bare minimum mindset when it comes to giving. And there are people who struggle with not being generous. And so when we come across a text like we did today in Acts chapter 4, and the examples of individuals like Barnabas and Ananias, you can't ignore what Scripture has to say on the subject of giving, on the subject of benevolence, on the subject of generosity. And you can't ignore it because you're a recipient of it. There's a story I heard about a former U.S. congressman named Bob McElwain. He wrote about taking his son out to eat at McDonald's one afternoon. And he didn't didn't order anything for himself. He only ordered food for his son. And when they sat down at the table, those golden, delicious french fries just stood out to him. And he couldn't resist And so he reached over and took one of those fries from his son's meal and ate it. And he writes that his son responded, Dad, don't take my fries! And the congressman was stunned by his son's actions. And reflecting on it, he wrote this. My son didn't understand whose fries those were. He didn't understand that five minutes ago I went to that counter and I bought those fries and I am the source of those fries. My son didn't understand that. If I wanted to, I could take those fries away from him, or I could go back to that counter and I could lay down some money and buy him, excuse me, and bury him in fries. But what my son really didn't understand was that I didn't need his French fries. I could have bought my own. What I really needed was his willingness to share what I had already given him back to me you really think about it, we're the original recipients of generosity. Paul said in Romans chapter 5, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, and God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. See, God gave all so that we might gain all. God was the original giver. God is the source of true generosity. And we are its recipients. And since God was willing to give all, shouldn't we be willing to do the same? And so this morning, As we take time to talk about a subject that may not be one that is a need in your life at this very moment, it still should serve as a reminder that you have a gracious God who's been generous with you. And it should cause you to reflect on whether or not the choices in your life in response. To what he's done for you. This morning, if you need to respond to the invitation, whether to become a child of God or as a child of God, to correct something in your life, then we offer it now. Won't you come while together we stand?